Welcome everybody to a special edition of Live from My Drum Room. Today, my very special guest is my old friend, Matt Sorum. Uh, no stranger to all you drummers. Drummer for The Cult, Guns N' Roses, Velvet Revolver, Kings of Chaos, uh, Hollywood Vampires, a million, a million more gigs. Uh, so I'm really excited to have Matt here with me today. And um, he's making time because he's a busy man. And so without any further ado, I'm going to welcome my old buddy, old meaning from a long time, Matt Sorum. What? What are you <laughs> busting into my house on Zoom? What the hell is going on? Uh, you know, that's what happens when you leave your camera on. You know, you never know who's going who's gonna to zoom, zoom in on you. Wow, I'm just like hanging out here in Palm Springs next to my wife's closet, <laughs> counting all the dollars I've spent on shoes and bags from years of drumming. This is the proof of the pudding right here. That's that's what, you know, working your ass off for the last 35 years is, you know, that's what you get. You get to buy your wife some really nice stuff. Well, you know, you got to pay, you got to pay the piper. You know what that's I'm saying? Right. Yeah. You have you want to have fun? Well, hey. Guess what? <laughs> Well, you know what they say, happy wife, happy life. Always. So, I learned that the hard way, you know, it took me a while, but yeah. I figured it out finally. <laughs> it's good to see you, buddy, man. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate you making time. I, I, I want to like tell everybody that by the time this airs a couple of weeks from now, your book will already be out. But I, uh, Matt is releasing his autobiography on May 10th and, um, when I reached out to you a couple of weeks ago, I didn't know this. I just felt like we were long overdue to do something like this. And then I found out you had this book coming out and the timing's perfect. So, so thanks for doing cool. this. Yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm just, I cancel everybody else, but you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, I know that guy. <laughs> Thank you. I know you're probably doing and, a ton uh, of these and I, and I appreciate it. No, I I'm serious. I'm not kidding you. I said, wow. John, we go, we go back to like 89 that's right. The cult. That's right, man. And there was you, a guy, Mike Morse. It's Zildjian. I know. I know. Matt, I got to tell you, I actually looked up the date because I knew it was 89. I started at Zildjian that summer, that, that May. And I found the date. It was July, maybe July something, 1989, Worcester Centrum, the cult, and, and uh, Metallica. Yeah. You guys are on tour with Metallica. And... Jimmy, uh, Timmy Doyle had called me like ahead of time and needed some stuff for you. And, and as you said, our old friend, Mike Morris had said, you got to check out Matt Sorum, man. I didn't know you then. I hadn't met you yet. Yeah. Um, I was so blown away. I was so, you know, I mean, Lars is Lars, Metallica is Metallica, but you, you stole the show. The cult stole the show that night, as far as I was concerned. And I feel like we, we were like instant buds. You were so cool and like immediately like you had that big smile on your face hey man you know thanks for coming you know and um yeah it was the beginning of a great friendship yeah that was cool man because we were up in your neighborhood are you still living up there in that way i am yep i'm still just outside of boston and um i mean and and I, not surprisingly it was only less than a year later that you were asked to join guns and roses right or maybe even six yeah, months about, or something uh, like just around two years we did that tour and i thought man this is great i'm in a van i'm on a bus and you know i was happy i i felt like i had arrived 
you know, yeah. and then, yeah. and then along came that other opportunity and I was like, Oh my God, this is crazy. And, yeah. uh, then it, then it took off in a, in a really crazy wild ride. I always used to say, if anyone remembers old school Disneyland, they used to be what's called the e-ticket. And you used to go to Disneyland, and you would get E-D-C. It was different tickets for different rides. And I'd say, I got the e-ticket for Mr. Toad's wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be confused with Ginger Baker, but... Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, things are off, and it, it, it got really kooky, and... Timmy Doyle came with me on that trip. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we, we, we took off as a team and, you know, it was great. That probably helped. I got to, I have to think that moving into, I mean, at Guns N' Roses at that time, there was no band bigger in the world. And, and to have your kind of right hand man there with you had to be at least, you know, help you through that kind of a transition from, as big as the cult was going to well, I remember band. calling you guys and going, I need really big symbols. Big... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had a 24 inch ping ride. I don't know if you remember, but that thing was massive. Yes. And in those days, you know, we didn't have in ears, man. It was just pure volume on stage and, you know, slash wielding like four Marshall stacks. And, you know, there was, I think eight Galeon Kruger amps. And underneath my drum riser, I remember I had four 18-inch speakers for kick drum. Just so I could. And believe it or not, as crazy as this sounds, you're outdoors on these massive stadium stages. And I'm like, turn it up. <laughs> Man. The joke was get Matt a porta potty because the low end was serious. And yeah. uh, but you kind of had to have it, you know, and I remember calling you guys and going, Hey, I want the biggest symbols possible. Cause I needed the decay to last. So, yeah. you know, I wanted to go. Boosh. And cause I remember I used to go see bands and symbols would just go like, boosh. and I'm like, yeah. what was yeah. that? It sounded like, you know, <laughs> yeah. some yeah. guys up there playing like a 16 or something. And he's in front of a big rock band. I'm like, that's not going to cut it, man. No. No. I just remember Bonham going, Babo, boo, 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 boo. I'm like, that's, that's got to be a 20. Yeah. It's yeah. a 20-inch crash. So I went, I remember going, the smallest was 18. I went up to 19, 20, and I actually had a 22 crash as well on the backside. Yeah. For that. Yeah. And boo, you were playing, the end. yeah, and you were playing A rock crashes too, I think, which were the heavier ones, and they... You know, they totally. were louder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was I, all A's yeah. in those days. It's funny. Now I hear A's and I'm like, ah, I know. You know, know, I'm a full K guy now. I'm like, I don't know if that comes with age or whatever, but now I hear an A and I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, I have a couple still that'll break out for the right bell thing. Like, yeah, I have all my, I have my original, original Zildjian 15 inch hats, rocks. Wow. And, wow. And they were the ones I played on all those tours. And I remember thinking, guys were like, wow, you're playing 15s? I'm like, well, yeah. Yeah. Now I play 16s. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I play those 16 um, uh, Zilg uh, Ks. The K, like the K Light 16? Is that what they're I got called? Both. I got the sweets yeah. and I oh, got the, the yeah. And I got the K Lights. And then because I was playing with Gibbons. Yeah. And he really likes a wide 
because it's a three-piece, he likes like a wider hat and a little bit slightly open, but kind of like filling up the space. Yeah. Yeah. With like a kind of thing. So (laughs) as you, yeah. And I'm like, give me some 16s. And he loved them. I'll bet. Yeah. Because he didn't really, if you watch ZZ Top now, like Frank Beard plays this, the hats a little bit more open. Mm-hmm. But back in the 70s, all those guys played the hat really tight. Really tight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But for live, Billy's like, open up the hat. Open up the hat. He didn't like that. That tight thing lives. Yeah. So but like you, like, like you say, it fills in a lot of space when you when you open those hats just a little bit. It just a little bit more air, a little bit more space. Yeah, if you think yeah. about those great 70s records, everything was super dry. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't big massive reverbs and shit till the 80s, right? And exactly. everything had its space, but the drumming was tight, thumpy drums. Yep. Right. Yep. And I love that because I and I would go back and study those early records as easy top and play it exactly like that. Billy go open up the hat a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. What you know, cool, by the rest of it pretty yeah. similar, you know. That's so cool. That's so cool. Well, when I saw you with the cult, I remember and I, I could correct me if I'm wrong, I I could be wrong about this, but I I were you playing like two Chinas in front like Terry Bozio? Or- yeah, I loved Terry in those days. When he when he when Terry went into missing persons, every drummer in town, you know, from Bissonette to me to everyone was like, dude, have you seen Terry Bozio? Yeah. And we'd all go out and watch Terry play when he had the crazy hair. Yeah. And go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we all got big pangs. <laughs> and, and I used to say I had those pangs to do. Flex shoes opening from Metallica. It's like, <laughs> but literally, I swear to God, like we would open for Justice for All, and it was like, yeah. In those days, you remember? You saw I do. It. Yeah, I saw it. It was ninety ninety five percent dudes that were like, <gasps> and they didn't really care for the cult, you know. <laughs> we were like a, yeah. a girl band, you know. We were like. So some shoes did come up, and those pang symbols saved my ass. Well, <laughs> I think I he told me this. I think I, you know, <laughs> but but yeah, I had two pangs. Yeah, I, I started out with like three rack toms. I remember that. Yep. And by the end of the tour, I was like, I'm going to strip it down and go to one rack, and I simplified my whole setup for my career going forward. So you had already when you when, by the time you got in Guns N' Roses you had you had changed your setup to what you ended up with the like you say the more simplified because when I saw you, you had exactly you had three rack toms maybe two floor toms yeah it was two floors yeah. the two Chinese and you reminded me I mean in a in a in a like a um, not not in any way copying Terry but it you you were remin- you know I could tell he was an influence in some of the stuff you were playing and you incorporated that, yeah. that yeah. yeah. <laughs> And the, I mean, the cult's so straight, you know, so sort of like straight ahead, but you were incorporating some cool shit, like some really. Yeah, double bass drums were not acceptable with the cult, right? I mean, there's yeah. a story in my book where I auditioned for David Lee Roth and Steve Vai and Billy Sheehan, the early, early version of the band that Greg Bissonette ended up getting. All these yeah. drummers 
went down to SIR to, to, to rehearse or, or audition. Right. And I remember uh, going in there and it was like Mark Craney and remember Mark Craney. Oh yeah, man. Sure. Uh, from Gino Vanelli and yeah, Jeff Rotel. Oh, so great. Great drummer. All these guys were in line. I'm like, I'm going home. <laughs> like, this is like, it's out of my league. And I remember going in there and Steve Vai, there was a double bass drum kit that they had rented. And I went and sat down behind the kit and I actually picked up one bass drum and moved it. And, and Steve Vai goes, hmm, what are you doing? I go, I don't play double bass. <laughs> and he went, hmm. Oh man. One demerit. Right. <laughs> and, and so I ended up playing. I grew up with Ian Pace and like Bonham. And it was all about one pedal. Yeah. Yeah. And uh I ended up not getting the um the gig the gig, obviously. And out of that I ended up going on to play with Ed Mann, though, the vibes player from Frank Zappa's band. Steve said, Hey, I got this drummer. I think he'd be really good for you guys. Which was real outside shit for me. It was. Oh, yeah. But I was into like Return to Forever. And, you know, I loved Al Miola, Lenny White and Billy Cobham. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I would, you know, I can't say I'm there without any more. But when I was younger, I was pretty well versed in a lot of that flam accent fills. And well, <clears throat> so anyway, I ended up playing yeah. with him. But then then I went and I and I'm like, shit, man, I, be, I better woodshed my double kicked playing right so i got a i got a double bass kit i remember it was a it was a tama kit and uh i don't remember how i got a hold of it but i basically sat in there all day and just right i was like <laughs> and and i went in to audition for the cult and i set that big kit up and they walked in and went no, no double bass. So I went, oh man. At <laughs> I that point, shit down. <laughs> yeah. At that point, I picked up the bass drum again, moved it, set my setup the way I, and then I went, that's when I discovered the double pedal. And that was early days. You know, DW. Yeah. yeah. I believe it was a DW double pedal that I was using in those days. Because I I think early on I signed a pedal deal with Chris Lombardi and John Good and those guys, like I had a pedal deal. Right. Which was wacky, right? Might've done, let me see if I did all hardware in those days. I you think, no, no. I think I played Yamaha hardware because I was with Yamaha and right. that, how that happened was, it was really funny. So I was managed by this guy, Howard Kaufman, who also managed Tommy Aldridge and, and the band Whitesnake. Yeah. So when I got the cult gig, they said the drummer, uh, this guy walks in, his name's Jimmy Ayers, very famous. You know him from Aerosmith camp. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. He came in, he goes, Hey, mate, uh, Jimmy Ayers, tour manager for the cult. Uh, and I do White Snake, and we're going to get you a black Yamaha drum kit. You're endorsed. And, <laughs> and whatever you want, just pick it out. So, from that moment on, because of Tommy Aldridge, I was Yamaha and Dorsey. So when I went to GNR, I shifted straight over and I met Hoggy, Hoggy-san. Yes. From Yamaha. 
and our old friend Steve Edelson. Yeah, Steve. Rest in peace is him as well. Our old buddy Steve. So Steve hooked me up, and then I had I was I was ready. I was like, I got Zildjian, I got my Yamaha, and then Remo Belly. Yeah, took me on, and that was great. You like, represent. Wow. I mean, I got like everything I need, and I go. I better call Zildjian and get a gong. That's what I need. I need a gong. And it's like, <laughs> like growing up with Bonham and Keith Moon and those guys having gongs. I'm like, so rock and roll. Absolutely. Van Halen. I remember I got a 38-inch gong. Big sucker. In fact, I think, I think at one point I came to see you. And when Timmy sees this, I think he'll remember it. Timmy Doyle, we're talking about Matt's um, longtime drum tech from back in the day. And I feel like you cracked it at one point, cracked a gong. And we didn't, we used to import them in. We, I think Zildjian still does, imports them from Wuhan. Yeah. And sometimes we didn't have them in stock. And Timmy was kind of freaking out because you needed one. We didn't have one. And he's like calling me every day. And I'm going, Timmy, I, man, I don't know. It's, it, you know, it's like it's on the boat. It's going to be here, you know, next week. Or, uh, um, but it, being the good tech that he was, man, he was. He's on it. He was on it. Yeah. And he was trying well, there to was find a versions of the Zildjian gong. There was the kind of like, I don't want to say it's low, more low quality, but there was. I know the one you mean. Yeah. <clears throat> I had that. That's the one I cracked. It yeah. wasn't Wuhan. Like Wuhan was like, wow. And you guys put the Zildjian name on it. Right. But I had the early version and I, those were kind of, I'm not saying, I'm not sure how they were cast. We got I those from somebody else too. Yeah. It wasn't from Wuhan. Cracked it. Yeah. And you know, it's not like I'm the rock, heavy rock guy. Cause I grew up in wind ensemble. I'm like, you got to warm that sucker up. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it went, but the one that I had after that, was the same gong I had for 30 years. And I cracked it on the very last show of the Hollywood Vampires in 2016. Wow. It cracked after 30 years. That's that's a pretty long life, man. That's that's pretty amazing. I was like, oh, it actually was very emotional for me. Yeah. I was like, oh. I mean, I mean, I'm just like, yeah, I mean, gongs can last forever, but at the same time, you know, moving it around and playing it and yeah, yeah I mean, that's, it that's moving around a lot. That's the problem, you know, is being yeah. picked up and thrown on stages and right. Right. I'd be like, I had a big anvil case for that sucker, you know, that thing yeah. will beep. I mean, it was, uh, but I ended up, uh, I haven't, re- I don't think I've replaced it yet because now i go hey i'm bringing the gong and they go uh, we haven't got the uh we haven't got the budget for that you know <laughs> you know uh bringing a gong on a tour is like okay seriously that's yeah You're that's like, a big budget tour yeah that's a, that's a real big budget tour yeah back in the day man we had like multiple setups you know like and I finally got rid of all those anvil cases literally like a couple of years ago and they were a massive. I stored them for like 20 years. Size of this house, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know. I sold my timpanis. I had timpani drums. Do you remember? I th- yeah, I think I do. With 
with the cult. You had like a like a two that percussion. came out of the riser, and then I had one yeah. next to me like Bonham. I had like a more of a small. I think it was a twenty-eight over there, and then I had the big guys. And we used to do one part in the show where it came out. There's a song called Sun King, and I go and it looked really cool and then it went down and went away and into the massive semi truck you know (laughs) once part of the show but yeah Yeah. i ended up selling those to josh freeze for um for nine when he was in nine inch nails but i kept them for years that's great never used them yeah, you know, but you're, it's cool that you're talking about that because it was at a time when, like you say, there were like, whether it was budgets or like, if you said, I'm taking a gong and I'm taking timpani with me on the road, like they it, they made it happen for you, right? I mean, that was how it was done back then, you know? Well, compared to Tommy Lee, I was lightweight, you know? I mean, could I imagine walking <laughs> in and going, hey, guys, I'm going to go up and down on a roller coaster and it's going to be like two semi trucks full of drums and, and <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. get out of here. You know, <laughs> I mean, I had a big drum riser, you know, I had a massive drum riser and I remember that was my world. Me and Timmy, we had a tent behind it and I go down there and I remember the one thing I wanted was, Hey, I go, let's do like a beach Island bar kind of thing back here. <laughs> It's like, can you get me like a really cool palm tree? Do like a tiki, tiki kind of thing. <laughs> so when Slash would take his like 20-minute guitar solo, I'd come down off the riser into this tent. We had like tiki lights and we'd be making so cocktails. You know, it was about that was always around three quarters into the show. So I could, you know, have a few extra knowing we were coming towards the end little shot or something <laughs> occasionally invite friends in you know we'd have a little so timmy had that all set up and the the riser was all mesh aluminum so it was like metal and the drums would be all in the same spot every night so they were all built into this metal all the every stand but underneath it was hollow. Yeah. So I could, the, all the speakers were under there coming up at me. And then on each side of the riser were these, <sighs> basically I had my own PA. It was like, I, yeah, I saw you a couple of times and it was unbelievable. The production. That you <laughs> you came up I mean, on stage and sat on the kit and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't yeah. a big kit, but it looked big because it was a simple setup, but I used big toms. I remember in right. those days, they were considered what they what they call concert toms or um, probably power toms, right? Power, power they were toms. Like, extra, yeah, extra depth. Yeah. My first was like a fourteen, but it was like thirteen inches deep. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Massive, and the kick was a big twenty-four, but it was I think eighteen deep. And then we had that huge Yamaha rack thing right. with all the mics on it and. And then the timpani and lots of little fidgety things. Like I had like, uh, I had a little uh, side snare. Yeah. Made it like Joe Mont- Joe Montaneri. Remember him? Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Great Joe stuff. Montaneri sat over there. And then some weird little like, I used to like to mess around with like jam blocks and a couple. Yeah. Little- 
yeah. funny little things. <laughs> and then Lots on the right, I mean, yeah. Guns N' Roses was famous for cowbell. So I yeah. every song, almost every song had a cowbell in it. Right, right. And I remember thinking, is this the secret sauce? The cowbell. The cowbell. That's why it's a hit. It's, <laughs> it's the cowbell. I always tell people, I'm like, think about it. I go, think about the cowbell. Think about the hits. Is it subliminal? Is it something that simple that makes it a hit? It's the cowbell. It's the cowbell. Honky Tonk Woman. Cowbell. Hard Day's Night. Cowbell. American Band. Yeah, we're an American Band. Cowbell. Yeah. I mean, this this are those intros. I was like, as soon as you hear Honky Tonk Woman and that cowbell part. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. People talk about these intros, these drum intros. They're like, oh, rock and roll. Yeah, okay. I know that one. But you think about setting up a song like that, you know, like a monkey tonk boom, doom, 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 And it's just like, what? Yeah, I know. I mean, I know you got you had a really long-lasting relationship with Charlie and man. Shit. I remember you telling me that story about when he called for the ride symbol. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was just an amazing, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, Matt, too, where like I grew up, he was my hero, you know, as a kid growing up. So to, to get to know him, you know, at such a deep level and, and become friends was, you know, still something I, I, I kind of can't believe sometimes, you know what I mean? I, I think about it and I go, Man, he was just like he wasn't putting me on, you know. I, you know, the first few times I kind of thought like, is he, is he kind of putting me on? He knows like I'm a, I'm a big fan, and he's just, he's just being nice. But he was just that nice a guy, you know. He was just no, like, you were just in the guy. club, man. You were like, I met the guy once. He blew me off. He was like, gay, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, he liked you, you yeah, know. It's well, like it's weird. I'm like that with Ringo. I'm, he'll yeah. call me. It's so strange. I'm like, <laughs> look at the phone. It's like Richard S is calling, right? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? That's so. so cool, I understand man. that feeling, you know, because you know, it's just you just blessed. It's just like yeah, you got that moment right. with, the, you know. And I think he probably just he's one of those guys that remembers, you know, that you're the guy. I mean, the story you told me was he called you up at Zilton and he goes, "Hello." Uh, broken my ride symbol. It's a twenty inch with one rivet. Yeah, like, yeah. Like this, <laughs> this is Mr. Charlie Watson. At first, you want to hang up, right? You're like, someone's <laughs> messing with me, right? But that's how it started, right? Is yeah, that yeah, your story? exactly. It was I. I I got a hold of him through um, his late drum tech, Chooch McGee. I'd left a message at Ocean Way. And I told Chooch I had some old symbols that I wanted to send him, some some new old stock like vintage A's from the 40s. And Charlie called. You know, I sent a letter explaining what it was. And uh, and Charlie called and said, I'd love to try the symbols. I've broken one. And it's a 20-inch 20, a 20 swish with rivets all around it. And oh, it was a swish. It was a swish. Huh. And, and I, always said it, I always thought it was a flat ride. And he was using he was using a flat later years later I might have told you that story where his flat ride started to develop some cracks, 
And he called one day and he was a little, he was really concerned about it. And we made, it was what he used wasn't a Zildjian, but we tried to clone it and we got pretty close, but he was able to, his tech was able to sort of save the flat ride that he had, but he then had a backup and it made him feel a little more comfortable, you know, that he had something just in case. And you know how that goes. If you're. Oh, he loved, he played the same kick forever. Forever. And he. The story I heard, you didn't change the kick drum head for like 10 years, right? Is that true? Yeah, I've heard that too. I've heard that too. I've heard that. Like why change it? It sounds great. Yeah. He you And know. he used to talk about how, you know, he'd compare old drums and old drum heads to like old shoes. You know, like they, they just feel better. They, you know, nothing fits better than like an old shoe. And, and uh, yeah. He was, I mean, you know, he's a he was a creature of habit like that. You know, he was. God, I mean, I know those nights when the kit's just perfect, and it's, when it's like perfect. whatever happened with that batch of drum heads. And I'm like, I'd say to Timmy some nights or other checks, don't change them. I love them. Yeah. He's like, yeah, but the snare's got a little bit of a thing in it. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. Like, I mean, traditionally, when I was hitting hard like that, you know, being maybe every three days. We'd have to change everything. Yeah, yeah. But then along came, you know, obviously a much different drummer than Charlie Watts. He was like more of a jazz cat and he was, wasn't killing him, you know, but he yeah. just, just, the tone was there and it was him. My thing, I had to smack him and right, right. Uh, that we ended up going over to Remo and coming up with that. I mean, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but in the early days we were like basically the guys that came up with the, uh, the Emperor X. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Wow. I was smacking through those things. And in the, in the days of, in that late 80s, early 90s era, it was pinstripes, man. Yeah, sure. For that flappy sound. That yeah. And it sounded huge in a stadium, but then that snare drum I had, I remember I went to an Emperor, but it's, it kept dipping in the middle. Yep. And I was just playing big rock sticks and just, <laughs> so i i'm like well you guys already have the cs dot let's why don't we try dropping a dot underneath so we did that and then i don't think it was ever spoken about that i took credit for that or my drum tech at the time mike fasano yeah sure when we were in the studio but wow we ended up using it and i kind of use it pretty much to this day that's a popular uh, head too that's that's it's a thing, you know, with drum heads, I always say to people, you know, oh, this sounds dead or it's too dead. Or go, go around and tap it first. Tone, check the tone. If the head's got tone, it's a good head. If it doesn't, if it sounds dead, got to move the plastic a little bit. Because in the old days in calfskin, that was a different theory. It, the, the head already had the tone. Yeah, yep. And they put That's it right. on there and you <clears throat> tweak it. But then with Remo coming up with all the, you know, the way to glue it and everything, you still have to crack that glue. I would take them and, you know, go all the way around and then pop them on, stretch them, yep. get them going, and then go around and tune every, t- get as much tone as you could. Because I've seen guys throw them on there and just be like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no tone at all. And I was a sucker. I was a stickler for tone. Like a lot of people say, they love my toms on all that GNR, but it was a doo, 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 you know. Yeah. Well, what, what you just said, Matt, about like 
sometimes you tell <laughs> me or your tech, like, you know, even though it's been a couple of days and the heads are a little beat, leave them on. Like, so that to me is the sign of somebody who, who hears good, t- like you're not dictated by, oh, it's been two days. I got to change my heads no matter what, which we know lots of guys that do that. They just go, well, it doesn't matter what they sound like. It's been two days. I'm going to change them. But you know, you're, you were basing it on the sound. You were going, man, they sound too good. I don't want to change these heads. That's yeah. When you find a guy that can tune like that, you know, I got, I got a little bit spoiled because now I was in the big leagues. Yeah. You know, in the old days, <laughs> when I was coming up in Hollywood, I had a Volkswagen right? <laughs> I had a VW. The front seat was taken out. Remember how you used to be able to take the back seat out and lay down yeah. in, a Volkswagen, in a Volkswagen bug. And I had the yeah. kick drum was my passenger. Yep. And then the other drums would sit in back. I would just shove them all back there. And that's how I got around from gig to gig. And I set my stuff up. And then later on, I got a 64 Rambler station wagon. I was like, man, I can kick. And then the guitar player would be like, can you carry my amp too? (laughs) No, (laughs) no. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, then when I got in the big leagues, I got a little lazy because I had Timmy. I mean, he was one of the greatest tuners and yeah. Great drum tech. I walk on stage. We didn't sound check. We would show up in the big stadium shows and just walk up and do the gig, you know, and I'd sit yeah. down with it. Yeah. Everything was just perfect. Perfect. You know, and, uh, and then later on, Timmy's like a big, big, uh, production manager now, Lenny Kravitz. And oh, I didn't realize guy. that. Oh yeah. He's in the big, he's big now. I can't even get him. He was big drum key. Are you kidding me? I don't touch that. <laughs> I thought I thought he was still. Te- I knew he was working for Lenny Kravitz. He was drum teching for a while though, right? But he's but he was. Then he became production manager. Now he's production. Good for him, man. He deserves yeah, it. I mean, great guy. Those guys. I mean, some of the great techs of the world. I mean, he worked for you. He worked for Jimmy Chamberlain, Joey Kramer. He's worked for like the greatest drummers. You know. Yeah, yeah. After me, I think he went to Jimmy for a while. Then he went to Joey. And um, yeah, Timmy. Yep, that tells you. And you know, let's uh, let's talk Gretsch. I see your beautiful Gretsch drums back there. Yeah, I've I've got five other Gretsch kits, vintage kits. But these are my, these are the two I have in this room, and that's the left-handed one is the one that I practice on, and that one over here that, uh, that's called uh, what's it called? Black oyster? Not black oyster. Um, oh yeah. Black uh, um, Black Pearl. Um, or Black Diamond Pearl. Black Diamond Pearl. Thank you, Matt. That's a 62, that kit. It's a 62 Ooh. round badge. So. Be a, oh, round badge. Ooh. Yeah. So I got a funny story about Black Black Diamond Pearl. So Hagi-san from Yamaha. I call Hagi-san, I go. Because I always played black drums, but I thought, man, mm. going out. So fast forward to the big Guns N' Roses metallica tour where we're doing stadiums um i think we played the big one there where the patriots played yeah you did you played in foxborough yeah uh i call hoggy son i go hoggy son i want to make black diamond pearl drums he says black diamond pearl okay man so we get to jfk stadium in washington dc 
and we're doing pre-production. We've got like two days at the stadium, believe it or not, with full rigs. Yeah, I'll bet. And yeah. The drums show up in boxes from Japan. And uh, we un- we unbox them. And they're baby blue. <laughs> and the crew's walking by and they're like, hey, let me- is there a girl drummer joining the tour? Is, let me know when you come out of man style. I swear to God, I was like mortified. I was like, oh my God. I call Hoggy-san. I go, Hoggy, I said black diamond pearl, not blue diamond. They had the same diamond in it, but it was yeah. blue. Oh, I was like, oh my God. And we set them up and I looked at them. I'm like, oh no. And I went to the lighting guy and I'm like, is there anything you can do? Can you hit me with like, what kind of light you got? Can you turn these drums black? <laughs> Timmy, can we, how, can we, what can we do? He's like, <laughs> everyone's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I ended up doing that whole tour on those drums. I think and I remember, I didn't, had- I didn't know the story, but I think I remember those drums. Yeah, they were, you know, in those days, that particular kit, I believe, was a recording custom, but I, I endorsed the Rock Tour Customs. Mm-hmm. I, I had that kit was made basically the same shells as like Steve Gatter or a guy like that played. Right. Recording Custom kit, it was called. And I believe it was mainly Burt Shell, right? That's right. Exactly. And it was, they were fat. They were fat sounding drums. And the snare, I remember the snare, I had a seven, seven inch deep. It was a custom drum by Yamaha's wood. And also I played the Zildjian Bell Brass. You remember that sucker? I do. Yes, absolutely remember that. Yeah. The Noble and, and I still have that. I got that. And then I got the new one from the girls, from Craigie. And, yeah. Uh, the, the smaller girl, one, right? I think. Yeah, but the big one I got in like the 80s. I remember that. Yeah. And did, did we have to replace the shell on that one time? Did that, I feel like Timmy might've called me once about that too, that it was out around, she, wasn't it? Yeah. Or did it crack or something? Cause some of them did. Yeah. Did they crack. did. You know what happened? It cracked right on the, um, cause I believe, wasn't it, uh, Noble wasn't and Cooley. it in a, a collaboration with Noble and Cooley? Yes. Yes, indeed. Yep. And, and big die cast hoops. Yeah. Something happened where they put the, the, uh, the lugs on and a crack went across from one of the lugs. Yeah. And it happened on a few of them, Matt. It wasn't, you know, it was a semi-common. That was the first production run of those. That drum was, was, I used it on the cult almost the great. whole tour. The end, I, I remember it. I totally do. And I, I remember that. Yeah. Great sound and drum. I want to jump yeah. backwards a second because something you said earlier, and I, and I wanted to pick up on this. You mentioned, because Greg's told this story a few times, Greg Bissonette, our good friend. Yeah. Um, and all the years I've known you, I, you'd never mentioned it, but I had Greg on, on my show last year and he mentioned auditioning for David Lee Roth. And he said he, he was going in as you were coming out or something or something along the lines. <laughs> and, and he said, and I said, I didn't know Matt auditioned for David Lee Roth. He said, well, Matt didn't play double bass drums. And so I think Greg had played some double bass drums and made oh a mental God. note to himself like that. Okay. And he, I think he wrote something out like a, I don't know, but he, like when he went in there, he was ready for it because he because because of that information that you'd given him. I think as you were going, he was going, standing yeah. in line when I walked out. Yeah, that's what he said, and you were like, 
man, I don't know. I, I think I, I don't think I'm going to get it, man. They, they wanted a guy that plays double bass drum. So, so literally when I came out that door, there was Greg Bissonette and Mark Craney standing there. That's, that's wild. And, but no one knew it was for David Lee Roth. Right. That's the other thing. Right. We all got called by Steve Vai and we we're like, Steve Vai is that guy from Zappa? Yeah. So when, when I walked in, I went, it was very clinical. We were playing like crazy time signatures and it was very Zappa school. Like yeah. he was yep. running yep. me through the mill. Like, give me a seven, four. And I'm like, okay, Genesis cinema yeah. show. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I got that. Okay. Then he said something like, play 26 over eight. Oh, and I was kind of cocky. And I looked up and I went, why? Yeah, why? <laughs> and, we, and then I said, I saw Billy Sheehan sitting on the couch. I go, God, I'd love to jam. Can we jam? We didn't jam. Mm. I played by myself. And it was it was probably the craziest audition I ever did. I never had a situation where I had to stand there and Steve Vai was reciting all these notes and and like running me through this whole school of, you know. Yeah, yeah. And at that point in my life, I was priding myself on being pretty pure rock and roll guy. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and then, but I looked at Greg Bissonnette and I knew he had all those other elements. Yeah. Of, yeah. You know, he's school, North Texas State, you know, and then Craney, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that so was you knew, you knew Greg from LA at that, t- like you kind of, you already knew who him, who he was. And well, I was in a band with his brother, Matt Bissonnette. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Was, so this there was this whole contingency of guys, right? In the mid eighties. There was Pat Torpy, you know, yeah. great drummer for Mr. Great Big. drummer. Yep. Ray Bissonette and all these other guys. And then Matt Bissonette. And there was another bass player in town named Bob Birch, who went on to play with Elton. Yeah. And we yeah. were kind of guys that would mishmash in other gigs, like and me and Greg were the drummers at Disneyland as well. Right, right. Which was Stan Freeze, Josh Freeze's father. Yep. And we would all, and Russ McKinnon, remember Russ McKinnon? Of course, yeah, yeah. We were the guys that played Disneyland. And then we would all sub for each other on other gigs. Like I would, we all had original bands, but Russ would call me and go, Matt, I got the, I got an original gig. Can you sit in for me at Disneyland? And we all knew top 40. Yeah. I go down to Disneyland and sit in for Russ. And then I sat in for Greg before Greg sat in for me. Same thing with those guys. That's so cool. Greg would give me charts. And I'm like, oh, okay. For <laughs> Miami sound machine. Awesome. <laughs> Working for the weekend by lover boy, Greg had charted out. I'm like, go, go, go. Cowbell. Working for the weekend. I'm like, Greg, I got this song. It's cool. Black, black, moon. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> Like reading it, you know, like, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember one time <laughs> I, we, so there was three different stages at Disneyland, right? There was Tomorrowland. There was the big stage, the main, they called the main stage. Tomorrowland was the one that came out of the ground. You were like, and then we'd all run over and watch like Louis Belson at Carnation out, you know? Oh man. Buddy Rich. There was the yeah. jazz guys. So we'd all go, hey, man, Louis Belson's playing tonight at Carnation Village. And you go over there. It was like the ice cream garden. Yeah. And they'd pay Louis Belson's band. Wow. And then Buddy was over there all the time. Yeah, yeah. 
And then I met a very, very young drummer, Josh Freeze. At the age of 15, he was playing there. Wow. And I remember going, who is this kid? Yeah. Yep. And his father was the booker. Right. And his brother, Stan Freeze, and uh, another brother. Yep. Keyboard player, I think, right? Yeah, he's in Green Day now. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and then anyway, or Jason, I think his name is Jason Freeze. And his yeah. dad's yeah. dad was Stan. Yeah. So anyway, that's how we all were around, you know, and then everyone got great gigs. Like, but, you know, Greg took off with uh, David Lee Roth. Yeah. And very closely after that, and close to that era, I got the cult. So I was cool. It was the right band for me. It was the right band for him. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. I always say that to people. It's like, you know, you get these gigs, you get certain gigs that are going to line up the rest of your career. You know, I had opportunities to play with some bands. I'm like, Hmm, I'm not sure if that's the right script for me. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. yep. not going to name names, but there was a couple of bands like, I think I'm just going to keep eating top ramen. <laughs> just, you know, I'm going to, and, yeah, like, yeah, and then, yeah. you know, when the cult came, that set the tone for the rest of my career that I'm this kind of drummer. I'm a, I'm a rock drummer in this genre. And like, I think Guns N' Roses respected that I came from the cult. It might not be the same way if I was in maybe a different genre of a band. Yeah. Yep. It can kind of come back to bite you. And, and, then, and when you, when they, if I remember correctly, when you joined Guns N' Roses, it was because were you guys on a bill together and they saw you play and, and kind of, I mean, did it happen that me or had they seen you play somewhere? Was it that sort of, yeah, they came out to the universal amphitheater. That's what it was. Okay. And I remember it's in my book. There's a whole chapter where they come rolling in. It was like a scene out of fast times at Ridgemont. Eye. It's like, yeah, it was like a cloud of smoke, you know, <laughs> I'll bet and at the time the Sonic temple tour was winding, winding up. Yeah, we'd been out on a pretty long year and a half tour, and I remember going, "Man, yeah." As a joke, I said to my girlfriend, <clears throat> "I said, look at those guys, man. They look like fun." And literally, not long after that, Slash tracked me down through Lars Ulrich, who I wow, yeah, become quite good friends with. And at the time, I wasn't living anywhere. I didn't have a phone. It wasn't cell phones. I know, I know, yeah. You didn't so, call, you didn't text somebody. <laughs> it's like if you wanted to find somebody, you had to like call them on a landline. Yeah, and, and find out where them. they were, you know. And like you say, you he had to do some some tracking down, <laughs> some Jim Rockford stuff to get Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I remember getting the call from uh, Mike Klink, the producer, and then called me and said, someone's going to be calling you. And I, I was like, I couldn't think of who it would be and slash called me up and invited me to come up and you know initially and i've said this a bunch of times in the press and everything i was just going to play on the record and i'm steven adler was going to come back and then it we just all hit it off and it was weird because i was already in the cult and i had a great gig and i loved that band and a lot of people still say to this day that that was like the perfect band for me it was like my groove you know but i remember thinking opportunity wise i had to make i had to make the move and they, they made me a member which meant 
I wasn't a side guy. Yeah. You know, I was a member of the band. I was in the photographs. I got the percentage. It was like all that kind of stuff. I was starting to learn my way through the business. Yeah. I can't say I did it perfectly, but I was like, okay. And um, so I remember taking Billy Duffy to, to lunch and telling him, you know, hey, I got this offer. Hmm. It was it was hard. I bet. And then years later, I went back and I rejoined the cult. I remember that too. Yeah. I remember seeing great. you like years later with him. Yeah. We went back and I remember going back to them and going, you know, you guys can't make me a sideman anymore. You know, I was just in that <laughs> other big band. <laughs> and we just got to be a band. <laughs> and they're like, okay, mate, well, you'll be an equal, equal member. I'm like, great. Yeah. So I always say to a lot of drummers, drummers say to me, like, you know, Matt, what did you do about negotiating your way into things? You know, I said, well, you got to, if you don't ask, you don't get. So don't blow yourself out, though. Be careful. It's like, it's a fine line. Yeah, it is. You know, it's like, I think for drummers, it's hard because I think the old preconceived notion is that we're replaceable. It's going to be the first guy that's going to go, right? Yeah. We need. We know we need the singer. We know we need the guitar player, probably. Bass player, man. Drummer, there's other guys. Yeah. So, if you're a perfect fit and you feel like it's that your band and the camaraderie's there, and you guys have started maybe early together, that's a different situation. Then you have to just say, "Hey, I've been here helping it with you guys from the beginning." But my situation jumping out of a band like the cult into GNR was I already had a band. I had a bit of a negotiating tool there because I wasn't just sitting on the sidelines going, Hey, you know, I don't have a van. So worst case scenario was they say no. And I go back to playing in the cult and, but they, they were like, we want you. And Mm. it was great. They, they've opened our, opened their arms to me and I had a great run with that band. Do you yeah, know? you did. And, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to say, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it started a lifelong friendship with Slash because you guys continue to play together and, and later bands and um, a collaboration anyway. I mean, like just there were like other things that you guys worked together on. Yeah. Well, we had Velvet Revolver, which was a big success for us. Yeah huge you know and that was an interesting time because we all went through periods about exploring our musical after being in this massive machine of a band yeah i remember when we broke up in the 90s it was like oh my god what are we gonna do now right you know i remember getting some calls from bands and i was like i gotta figure out how to adjust to this and i remember i got into doing film scores I started dabbling in producing. I actually had some success producing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to be honest with you, I wasn't sure if I could pull it off again. I was like, well, that was a fun run. I mean, how am I ever going to get to that level again? I don't think I, so why don't I just, you know, try some other stuff, do some other stuff. And then came full circle. I got back in the cult. We got a big record deal with Atlantic. And then, you know, Slash and Duff and myself kind of stayed close and did stuff, but not in a big way. Yeah, yeah. And then 
in the early 2000s, we decided it's time for us to do a band. Let's do a band. And um, yeah, we, was, we ended up band. signing with RCA and, you know, one got three Grammy nominations, won a Grammy and sold about 4 million records <laughs> and cool. had a really good, that was a quick lightning in a bottle run though. It was like, boom. Yeah. And I remember when it hit, when we had a hit, which was a song called Slither, which we got the Grammy for. Right. It was like literally going from like hanging out, waiting to get going again to like, it was on fire. Like, <laughs> Like we were on a press tour for like three months and we were like on every magazine and it was like the switch went on and we were like it. And uh, it was exciting. I was like, holy shit, I can't believe we did this. And it was probably for me, one of the most exciting things that ever has happened in my career because we were in our forties. A lot of naysayers in Hollywood were like, hmm, mm-hmm. I don't care what band those guys were in. It's kind of like they're getting a little older. Mm, rock them, really? And that's the kind of stuff you deal with in the business of music. Yeah. And we proved them all wrong. And that was a real feather in our cap. And we looked great. We all got in good shape. Yeah. And it was all like, this has got to be. And I was fired up like a kid again. I was like, I felt like I was 20. It's like, ah. And it worked even harder because they always say the old expression is the older you get, the harder you have to work. <laughs> and we did. Yeah. We worked hard at our appearance. We looked, worked hard on harder than ever. And I will give the props to Slash and because uh, we were at rehearsal every day at 12 noon. We rehearsed six, eight hours a day. We were writing songs. It was like boot camp. Mm -hmm. dedication yeah and i'll say that to any young musician they'll ask me what do you think man i go work your ass off right it's not about your computer yeah this is like go play all the time with other guys Mm -hmm. and maybe if you're lucky i think kobe bryant said it he's like if everybody else is practicing twice a day I'm practicing four times a day and we did. And it wasn't like, it wasn't even about like being the drummer that had all the chops in the world. It was more about being a band that had the chops together. Yeah. I think Charlie Watts would say that Charlie Watts is the guy that's the band. He's not doing anything fancy. He's just cool. And Charlie was the foundation of the stones, man. He was like, it all started there. Like you said, honky tonk woman or whatever he came in like. Yeah, yeah. And that unit of a band is what made the magic. So I think my career came up with that sort of mindset. Like if you find the magic, just nurture the magic and just work on getting the best songs, you know. That's that's great advice, Matt. That is, that's. You know, it seems so simple, but in this world of like YouTube and, you know, where you can, you can post drum solos all day and social media, it's just so simple that the importance of playing with other musicians, man, just like, 
learning how to play in time with the bass player and having it feel good and groove and 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 i was going to point out too when you mentioned replacing drummers um i think you'll agree with this you you sing you're you're a great singer i mean i've seen you in all your bands sing backups and uh and that's a great you know it makes gives us drummers more value you know it's not like you can just easily replace a singing drummer you know when you're when you're vocal well I, well I always see i came up in the school of like you had to have extra attributes to offer yeah so for instance like if i were looking for a guitar player in a band or a bass player we'd say hey does he sing yeah we were yeah. singing harmonies and background vocals and so I say to young musicians, I say, hey, you know, try to have as much stuff to offer as possible. I mean, you know, if you can sing, cool. That's just another, you know, thing you can offer the, the group. And I sang, I, I enjoyed singing in all my bands, plus gave me a real good sense of, of meter. Yeah. And like tempo, because if you're playing too fast and the vocals doesn't fit within that, tempo you're not listening yeah and i think if you look at drummers like ringo and some of those great drummers that set up for the for the vocal and i've talked to ringo about this he said well listen to the vocal don't step on the vocal yeah exactly. don't step on the vocal like if you're listening to the vocal you're going to set it you're going to put some stuff around that vocal or or launching into that chorus and setting up that big chorus you're going to gonna set it up really cool with a fill and then boom yeah and then you know the solo is coming build it and then bam then you're up on the ride and you're like you know it's all about the dynamics and the tempo of the song and that's i pride myself on being just a song drummer that's all i am i'm not like fancy pants you know i'm like, <laughs> I'm like i can do some stuff but uh, it's not my it's not why i get hired to play with bands yeah. i think yep you look at me like Matt's got great meter. He looks pretty good. He's not a bad looking dude. He's like, you know, it's like Solid he hits him right. He hits him. You know, yeah. Yeah. he he keeps good time and his great dynamics and drive the band. Your job as a drummer is to drive the band. Right. You're in the driver's right seat. And yep. so guys are out there making fancy pants videos on YouTube. I'm like. You see these kids, and I'm like, oh my god, I could never ever play any of that shit. <laughs> yeah, I know, me too. <laughs> but the thing, the problem with that is when they go to play for some big artists and they're doing all that shit, they're probably going to turn around and go, "Don't do any of that." That's right. <laughs> exactly. All exactly. that stuff you just did, don't do any of it. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. I got to point out too to everybody um, what you just yeah. said, and and I know we're getting close to the time on this thing but um i want to point out if people haven't heard you play on the buddy rich uh memorial the buddy rich uh big band record that you oh, did yeah, in the yeah. 90s yeah you played some ridiculous shit and i remember we came in it was while the modern drummer festival was happening it was yeah. like happening because you played at the festival that weekend i remember that a bunch of yeah. you guys did and then neil parrot was producing it at a studio in New York City, a bunch yeah. of us came in. I remember I I came in the studio when you were tracking. Oh, um, <laughs> I remember I was in there watching you, and I think you and Kenny might have recorded the same day, possibly. Yeah, you and Kenny Arnoff. It was and crazy. I, 
Yeah, and I've never heard you play like that, Matt. I'd never, and then I saw you play at the at the actual concert that they did in New York, like maybe oh, yeah, that year. Ian Kenny that? and Omar Hakim and Rod Morgan. Yeah. Neil Pert was there, and Neil Pert was there, and we we hung out at the Paramount. That was one of the craziest hangs of our lives. Know, I mean, as you know, John. Oh, oh yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Can't even. I don't even think that's in the book. It shouldn't be because people could lose their jobs maybe as a result. We got hammered. <laughs> oh man. Uh, I, you were going to say something, but I. What was our old buddy? What was our old buddy from Zildjian? Lenny. Oh, Lenny Demuzio. Rest oh, his soul. Lenny was there that night. God, I got him hammered that night. I know you did. You got us all here. Okay, if you're yeah, going to tell us, you, so everybody watching this, Matt, <laughs> you were you were buying rounds of Jägermeister for everybody. I mean, it was oh, just like that was in a bad, bad way. Then it was I, bad. That's it. a lot of that's in the book. When you read the book, yeah, I go a little off the rails, and the wheels come off a little bit. But well, you were a generous guy. You were always like a. Generous it happened. Guy. Um, yeah. 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 But yeah, I love that night. I remember that night. You know, I was going to say real quickly, yeah, that was an amazing, amazing opportunity as a drummer that maybe wasn't recognized as that style of drummer. So I got the call from Kathy, who I'd met at NAM or one of those. And she calls me, says, Matt, we'd like to have you on these buddy tribute records. And I was like, at first I was like, oh my God, you know. Yeah. There was that call you get where you're challenged and initially fear sets in <laughs> and she says neil pert's producing and i'm like oh even double fear yeah. like, oh. <laughs> and then she starts late naming off the list of people that are on the record steve gad oh! <laughs> omar hakeem oh my god yeah yeah <laughs> you know dave Weckel. you know these guys benny caliuda i'm like why me because we want a rock guy. Yeah. We yeah. want a rocker. It was smart. It really was. And then I go, okay, let me check out. Let me listen to Buddy's stuff. Okay. Early 60s. Hmm. Bula Witch. Funky Jam. Had like a <clears throat> kind of a funk rock beat. To, it had swing, mm-hmm. but it was rocking, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he explored that, you know, he went from his big band swing era into the sixties, started dabbling in all different rhythms, different stuff. And I'm like, yep. I'll do Bula Witch. I can bite that off. And Killed it. I remember walking in and Dave Wackel's walking out and he's holding like his sticks and he's got his thing. And he goes, you got your charts. And I actually had a Sony Walkman on. And I was listening to Bula Witch. And I go, no, but I got this Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember we set up at the power station in New York. And I walked in and the whole band was there. And they were looking at me like, <laughs> all tattooed and stuff. I'm walking in, you know, like I'd been up all night, a little puffy, drinking too much beer. Because I was nervous. I couldn't sleep. Yeah, yeah. I was on tour and I remember I flew in it, got picked up by Buddy's driver in his little old limo. Wow. And he's like telling me these stories. I've been Buddy's driver for oh, since the 60s, blah, blah, blah. So I'm in this old limo driving through New York. And anyway, go upstairs. And I walk up to the band and uh, Steve Markison. 
Oh yeah. God, Listen man. to the solo he did on that. It's like, yeah. Guitar players can listen to that solo and interpret some of the greatest notes that they could take into this. Yeah. And anyway, I, I walked up to the band. I go, can you give, can you guys give me like four bars at the top? And they go, well, four bars, huh? <laughs> and I go, and I remember it kicked in and the horns were coming at me. It was like so power that my initial reaction was, listen, play. Yeah. And yeah. it was like listening to another musician in a rock band, except for it was coming at you like a freaking freight train. Yeah, man. Yeah. Ba-da, ba-da, and my limbs were just like, I was like, what the hell's happening? And I looked over, there was a poster of Buddy on the wall. And I oh, said, man. thank you for possessing me. I'm not you. I'm never going to be you. Nobody's you. But Neil walked out and he said, wow, we got it. I said, what? One take? One take, yeah. One take? First Holy take. shit. I was going to ask you how many <laughs> takes. Wow. We did, we did an extra. He goes, let's do one for safety. But I think that's the one. I was like, I looked at Neil. I'm like, I'm looking at Neil Pert going, are you, are you, you're kidding, right? Wow. I missed a couple of things. It was a little like ramshackle in a couple of spots. But in general, it's almost like, well, it had like a nice magic to it. Yeah. I, I, and I was, I was there when you did. I remember, I know I either heard the playback there or I was there when you did it. But, um, and I remember honestly how, blown away all the guys in the band were with you because i think you know without sounding like they were being judgy i think they probably they probably we're saw being the judgy. tattoos <laughs> yeah, they, they i don't know they, they i don't think they realized that you'd be able to pull it off the way you did you know i think they thought well yeah it's, it's going to be good to have him he's going to help sell a lot of records because he's a famous drummer yeah um and but yeah know, i'm sure there was preconceived notion i mean yeah when you're when you're a rock guy especially from a band like guns and roses you know, there's a, there's a thing that's like, man, do, do these guys play good? Are they? Yeah, exactly. You know, can they play? Or, um, and I think, you know, I've morphed into so many different styles of music. It's like, for me, it was like, I'm just going to listen and be more yeah. as best I can be inside the music. You know, it's like, it's almost like the way I have to play for Billy Gibbons now. I go back to a whole different style. I'm, I'm actually playing a style of music that I grew up with. I, I cut my teeth down in Louisiana in a blues band, three piece blues band when I was 19. Wow. I, know, I was that. playing the blues yeah. and, and Texas shuffles. And then that kind of, I didn't need it for 30 years. Yeah. I didn't use it. I played big rock shuffles, but I didn't play the Texas shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember going, okay, here comes Billy. I better, go which at this which as a lot of drummers know that texas stuff is the easiest shit to play and it's more subtle no it's like there's subtleties it's not big rock at all that's right and it's it's almost like the opposite matt really when you think about it it's like you're playing all those like ghost notes with your left hand and you know where you're playing like these big slamming 
you know, two and four quarter notes with rock. You got to play all those little ghosty things, you know? Yeah. I think for a lot of drummers, like if you think about stylistically on drummers and guys that are jazz drummers and they're so great at playing jazz, they can't launch into maybe what I do. Right. And the same says in the same respect, it's very difficult for me to go back into the subtleties of what they do. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we all have our sort of unique position. You know, it's like, there was a point in my life when, you know, I was listening to it, like I described, I was listening to Al Miola and Return to Forever and Lenny White. And my friends came over and they're like, Matt, you can't go into jazz fusion, man. You got, you got to play Sabbath with us, you know? And at that point, I had to make sort of a overall decision about this is going to be who I am. Yeah. And that's what I sort of focused my you know, what style I was going to be in, into. Yeah. Your direction. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think maybe drummers look at it like, well, it's just straight rock. I mean, it's really like, you know, it's not a bit lot to it. Meat potatoes, mm. but ask Phil Rudd. He'll tell you. That's I mean, right. There's no, one, there's no one like Phil Rudd. Oh. When Phil Rudd's not in ACDC, in my opinion, it doesn't sound like ACDC. Yeah. Exactly. And, and just John Bonham. Right. John Bonham. Okay. Did he have elements of R and B? Did he have a lot of swing? There was jazz in there. Yes. Bill Ward, jazz drummer. Yeah. Yeah. So still I'd say to rock, young rock drummers, go listen to all that shit. Listen to Gene Krupa. Listen to, you know, these guys take yeah. everything that you can from everything. It's like a smorgasbord. Yeah. You know, that's great advice. And, and, I know we're, we're, you've gone a long time and I really appreciate it <clears throat> and, and you probably need a glass of water, but I want to just ask, um, yeah, I could have some water. The, the name of the book. It's called yeah. double talk and jive, double talk and jive. I love it. And the reason it's called double talk and jive is it's a song on future illusion that me and Izzy Stradling recorded. And it starts out on the floor, Tom. And uh, I remember thinking, that just basically says it all. Mm, mm. Double talk and jive. Double talk and jive. I have. <laughs> I I should have got these ready behind me in that pile of records that I have yet to put on my wall down here. Mm. I have both use your illusion, use your illusion one and two. Uh, platinum multi-platinum records that you sent me uh, nice many years ago you came to my office at zildjian this would have been um i'm thinking like early 90s because those those records came out in 91 92 91 and you Mm -hmm. were on tour i came to see you at the boston garden then you came to zildjian and you looked in my office and you said where's your guns and roses records and i said i don't have any and you made a phone call I swear yeah. to God, you made a phone call. And like in in and like you said, in those days we didn't have cell phones. Like you called a number and like four days later they showed up. Wow. And I so appreciate that. And I'm I'm sorry I didn't I should well next time. I like I how you have them leaning up there. It looks cool. Well, thanks, buddy. They're they're there and I'm proud of them. Well and in a recording studio here in the desert. I'm gonna have a full drum room. It's gonna be sick. So I have this Duco Gretsch kit that they made yeah. for me. Beautiful. They're, they're Brooklyn's. Yep. Great recording drums. I just did a soundtrack for a movie with the 
Shooter Jennings, Waylon's kid on those Ducos. And I'm like, whoa, they're not older drums, but they sound killer. Yeah. yeah. Got a big Duco kit. And then I'm going to have a little broadcaster kit that's green. It's a Cadillac green. I'm going to have a small kind of setup. I can do thumpy, like Ringo kind of stuff. And then I'm going to have a big rock kit out here in Palm Springs. Beautiful. And we'll be able to, you know, if you're ever swinging through town, come check it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. But Matt, thank you so much for, for being here today with me. I so appreciate it. And No, I mean, I'm so happy to see you. I've always loved you, man. And oh, thank you. You're really one of the early supporters of the Matt Sorum uh, project. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. I, I, well, I feel the same way about you. You know, I, I we met when I was just kind of on my way in the, into the business. So, you know, I feel like we, we really bonded immediately and, and here yeah. we are, you know, all these years. We've been a pretty good life so far. Yeah. Yep. We've been. Thanks, we've been man. I'm really glad, glad to see you. And we were able to reconnect and, you know, Me talk, too. talk shop, drums, music, life. Great. Likewise, too. Well, hang tight. I'm going to, I'll end the, the recording and uh, thank everybody for watching. A big hand for Matt Sorum. As Ringo would say, peace and love, peace and love. Peace. Peace and love, peace and love. And don't forget to pick up Matt's book. It'll be available by the time you see this. And it's Double Talk and Jive, and it's probably going to be on Amazon and anywhere you can, yeah. can, can find it. So, great. All right, well, hang tight one second, Matt, and we'll, uh, we'll end the, uh, cool. the broadcast. Thanks again, buddy. Great to see you. Nice.